If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. If you don't, that's fine. I'm going to be reading it to us anyway. So either way is fine. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. If you let your Bible fall open in the middle, you'll just about be there. While you're turning to Isaiah chapter 55, let me tell you the story of an amazing invitation. The invitation is found in the book of Song of Solomon. This is the poetic uh, story of marital love, and in this story there are two main characters. There is young Solomon, and there's a common field worker, a, a young girl, a young lady. And she gives a description of herself. She says that she's burned by the sun, she's overworked, She's a slave of her own brothers. She's forced to work long hours. She is not an elegant woman. Solomon is portrayed in the first few chapters as just a simple young man who expresses his love for this girl. But his invitation to her, for her to spend her life with him, in chapter 3, is nothing short of staggering. Because no longer dressed like a simple country man, the girl and her family and her friends, they look And on the horizon, they see something coming that she had never seen before. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, says, What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And he has come to marry his girl. And he's come to take her from the fields to the palace of the king. That's an invitation. One of the greatest invitations in scripture. But I give you that as a contrast because we have a better one. We have a greater invitation found in Isaiah chapter 55. Now, as a church on Sunday evenings, we've been studying what we've called God's plan for Israel and the nations, beginning in Isaiah chapter 45 and, or 49, rather, and we've intentionally arrived at Isaiah 55 on this evening, on Good Friday evening. Now, this section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 49, moving onward, begins to give a, a wayward and a disobedient nation of Israel, not only in Isaiah's day, around 700 B.C., but prophetically all the way into the future, This section begins to give them hope that God has not abandoned them. He has not forgotten them. He has not let them go to their own sin. And not only is God going to restore and redeem Israel as a nation, as we saw in Isaiah 54, he's going to restore and redeem anyone who would receive his invitation. And so tonight we've inserted our next installment of this mini-series, and tonight we're looking at a gracious invitation to salvation. A gracious invitation to salvation. Now, just by way of explanation, what do we mean when we use the word salvation? Sometimes we can use Christianese, and not everybody understands all those terms. Salvation simply means to save you from something. And in this case, salvation speaks of saving you from guilt, from punishment, from the eternal consequences of your own sin. That's what we mean by salvation. That there's no good work that you can do to impress God 
James 2 verse 10 says that if you have violated one of God's standards, one of God's laws, one of God's statutes, you are guilty of all of them. And why is that? Well, because a, a small, tiny violation of his holiness and his perfection is an eternal violation. You can't undo it. You can't take it back. And so this invitation given by God himself found here in Isaiah 55, it's, it's adamant, it's pleading, it's imploring, it's entreating you to accept God's offer. Because as the text will say, basically, this offer will expire. You can hear the pleading of God just in his use of a Hebrew verb form called an imperative. It's a command, and there's 12 of them. There's commands, imperatives like come, buy, eat, listen, incline your ear, come to me, hear, seek the Lord, call upon him. I mean, it is a pleading, it is a begging. And so to begin our time together in the word of God, let's just listen to the gracious invitation to salvation. Isaiah chapter 55 the words of God himself. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There are three parts to this gracious invitation. All of them are vital parts. They're all necessary parts. They're like the three legs of a three-legged stool. You have to have all of them. They're all critical. And so I'd like to just briefly examine these parts tonight. The first vital part of this invitation, we might simply call proclamation. Proclamation. We find this in verses 1 through 5. That The message has to be given. The offer has to be made. Mankind cannot guess what God's requirements are. But the offer is only made because God is gracious to make the offer. There's nothing in the pages of Scripture that says that God is somehow obligated to mankind. He's not. That's why we call this a gracious invitation. It's not one that he's obligated to make. 
The Apostle Paul, speaking to the unsaved Jew who's yet to believe, he said in Romans 10, verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so here in Isaiah 55, God himself is the preacher. And he issues a proclamation. And he does so in a poetic and interesting and creative way. He plays the part of an ancient water seller. What is a water seller? Well, a water seller would, would haul water from places that were, that, to places that were far from a natural source, and he would stand out in the streets and he would yell for customers. Now, all of us have been in the position of being desperate for thirst and with gritted teeth and a begrudging heart, we pay $6 for a bottle of water because we're thirsty and it's convenient. And, and we, we, we hate that, but we need the water. And an ancient Near Eastern water seller, he could extract any price he could. And he would sell water to the thirstiest people for the biggest price. And so the water seller's in the streets and he's making his pitch. Now, this is very interesting. The English Standard Version translates verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That's a good English translation. But the Hebrew is less refined than that. In Hebrew, it's, you ready for this? Oi! That's what it is in Hebrew. Come. It's oi, attention. Hey, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. God is the water seller and he's calling the thirsty. He's saying, come to me. Receive forgiveness. Be freed from sin. Be freed from bondage. And this is very appropriate for us because spiritual thirst, spiritual hunger... This is a major theme in Scripture. Psalm 42, verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 143, verse 6, the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. This was a major preaching theme for the Lord Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, he offers to give living waters of salvation so that we might never be thirsty again spiritually. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then, poignantly, at the Feast of Tabernacles, right after what is called a water ceremony, in John 7, verse 37, Jesus stood up and he cried out to the crowds, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink. And so the theme of spiritual hunger and thirst is is a major theme in Scripture. Now, depending on the circumstances, the water seller might be able to extract almost any price if he found thirsty enough people, but not God. He doesn't extract any price. In fact, he says, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. He says to buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is the wine and milk? He's not just selling water. He's not just giving what is barely able to sustain you and to satisfy you, but he's giving richness and delight in satisfaction. In the Bible, wine and milk are often symbolic of abundance and enjoyment. That it's not just, I want you to survive, I want you to thrive. I want you to have a delighted soul. In other words, God is not offering spiritual soup. He's offering a feast. He's offering a bounty. And then, on top of that, God denounces all other offers. He says in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Why are you going after things that can't satisfy your spiritual thirst? Why are you drinking of those things that will only leave you thirsty again? Why are you going to false religion, which teaches you to earn salvation, which I'm giving freely? Why do you go to drink from the well of belief in your own self-righteousness, belief in religious actions that somehow those are going to do something for you, belief in your own humanism, belief in your wealth or your career or your family or your possessions, that anything and everything that try to create meaning, to create worth. Why are you going to those things? In fact, God says in the end of verse 2, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Listen diligently. This is a great phrase, and, and I wish we all knew the Hebrew phrase for this if we were parents, because it says in Hebrew, basically the construction means, listen to me and don't listen to anybody else. That is intense. It's not just that God is saying, I'm offering you one of several possibilities. He's saying, I'm offering you the only possibility. There is one option, and it's the one I'm telling you. He says, listen only to me. I alone have the cure to your spiritual hunger, to your spiritual thirst. But what is this water? What is the wine? What is the milk, the bread, the rich food that's this listed here? Now, certainly we could say that it is salvation itself, and that would be accurate. But I think the larger context gives us a more precise, a more detailed understanding. What is it that is like a drink of cool water? What is it that is a luxurious uh, type of thing in its bounty, like wine and milk? What is it that's satisfying like bread and filling like rich food to give you all that you need? What is it? Well, we always look to the text first to give, give us an answer, and we find the answer here. We get a clue in verses 8 and 9, and we get a direct answer in verse 11. What is the the water, the wine, the milk, and so forth? Well, the clue in verses 8 and 9, the Lord speaks of my thoughts, my ways, my thoughts, my ways. And then we get a direct answer in verse 11, my word that goes out from my mouth. What is the water, the wine, the milk, the bread, the rich food? It is the word of God revealed to give us the answers that we need. We now have in the written form of Scripture, it is this very invitation itself, a drink of cool spiritual water. The Word of God is luxurious and satisfying because it leaves you needing no more answers. Do you understand that if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you have all the answers that you need right here in the pages of this book in order to go into eternity safely? That's luxurious. That is splendid. That is satisfying. The Word of God tells us all we need to know about ourselves, tells us all we need to know about the Lord, and it tells us all we need to know about His requirements of us. And so the very words that God speaks are are life-giving. And based on that fact, the proclamation continues. In verse 3, He says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And what will do, God do if you listen, if you incline your ear, if you hear? To the nation of Israel, God promises, beginning in the second half of verse 3, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, this little section of the proclamation seems to serve several purposes for us. First of all, it, it's a reminder to Israel. It's a reminder to the nation of Israel of the covenant that God made with King David 300 years before this text was written 
that God would bless David and for all time, Israel would have a descendant of David on the throne of Israel, which of course will be the person that the Bible will call the son of David, and that is Jesus Christ. It seems to serve a second purpose though, and that is that David serves as a witness, as an example, that if God is faithful to him, which he will be, then God is faithful to make good on his offer of spiritual life, to make good on his offer of restoration, of forgiveness, of new life. But it has a third purpose. This reference to David goes much farther than just David himself. Verse 4 says that he's a, quote, leader and commander for the peoples, plural. King David is never said to be a global ruler. But the son of David will be. The son of God will be. The whole Gentile world, according to this text, is on the move toward the son of David. And through this son of David, Israel will be elevated such that through her, in the person of Jesus Christ, salvation will be offered globally. Gentiles will come to receive this water of salvation, this truth of the gospel. Verse 5 says, Behold, you, speaking to Israel, shall call a nation that you do not know. That's everybody else. And the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God is proclaiming in verse 5 that when he says everyone in verse 1, he means anyone, any people, any nation, and we can extend this out. We can extend this out that the invitation goes to any level of sinner that there is no sinner that is beyond the grace of God. There is no amount of guilt that is beyond God's ability to save. There is no hopeless cause that God cannot redeem that can't be brought to the water cellar to receive free and living water. So the proclamation is put forth. But there's a second vital part to this gracious invitation. We might call this abdication. Abdication. To abdicate is to renounce something, to relinquish something, to, to step down. See, this gracious invitation that God is giving, it has a caveat, it has a qualification, it has a requirement. The requirement is, you must come alone. You must come alone. There are things you must forsake, things you must leave behind, things you must abdicate. You must abdicate all rule over your life. And the text is going to go on to give us three things that must be forsaken so that you come to the invitation alone. First, you must forsake your nature. You must forsake your nature. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We get two of these strong imperatives. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. Now there's a obvious implication here. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this out. If the text says that there is a time while he may be found, logically, there is a time that he may not be found. There is a time that it's too late. There is a time when grace is gone. There is a time when grace is no longer amazing. Grace is closed. Grace is finished. Clear implication here. In fact, it's said very directly three times in the book of Hebrews, as the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 97, 95, verse 7, that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that is the call of God here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And so if one would respond to God, if you would heed the call to salvation, 
there's some soul searching to be done. If you're going to get this done, if you're going to respond to the invitation, there's something that has to happen. And that is there must be an admission of guilt. There must be an admission of guilt. You do not come to God with a no contest plea. You come to God with a guilty plea. So if you respond properly, you would understand Ephesians 2 verse 3 that says that you carry out the desires of the body and the mind and are, listen to this, by nature children of wrath. Meaning that you naturally do the things that incur the wrath of God. Well, I'm a pretty good person though. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. Romans 3 says that none is righteous. No one does good. Meaning that all of the good things you can do can still never take away one single sin. Do you understand that? Do you understand that you could be perfect for most of your life and that still doesn't make up for sins that you committed prior to that? You can't do it. As a matter of fact, what is God's assessment of your nature? Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You didn't even have a chance. You didn't have a shot. There is nothing you can do to be good enough for God. And so humanity is given this choice, either love your sin or love God, but you cannot do both. And so here's the call to forsake your nature in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He says, forsake his way. It's a word that means leave it behind. And he says to return, to, to turn back. It's often translated to repent. It means to stop facing this direction and start facing this direction. And if you will, then God will abundantly pardon, meaning that every sin you've ever committed will be removed from your record as if you had never committed it, and you'll stand clean before God. Now, we have to be very clear. This is not a call to clean up your life so that God will accept you. You can't clean it up. The sin is already there. It's already happened. It's already done. What this is a call to do is to change allegiance, to change allegiance. In fact, the Greek word for repent that's most often used in the New Testament speaks of changing your mind about your sin, that instead of loving your sin, you now hate it. And instead of hating Christ, you now love Christ. That You understand that your sin has violated the the purity and the sanctity and the holiness of God that a person who loves their sin cannot stand before God. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus preached. His message was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sin. Change allegiances. What is this? This means admitting, and this is hard for us to swallow, but this means admitting that you, in your nature, bring nothing of value to God that you bring nothing of value to God. Listen carefully. It is a truth that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is a lie that God somehow saw something in you worth saving. You understand that? Romans 3.12 says says of humanity that, quote, together they have become worthless. It's a word that means useless. I don't know whether I'd rather be worthless or useless. Either one is a condemnation. You must forsake your nature. God did not look down from heaven and say, that guy is worth saving. He looked down from heaven and said, none of you are worth saving, but I love you. 
and I will give my son for you anyway. You must forsake your nature. You have nothing to bring. There's a second thing you must forsake in your abdication. You must forsake your rationalization. Your rationalization. Human beings rationalize that which is inherently irrational in God's economy. For example, there's a common rationalized religious belief that our dead relatives are watching over us. That is, has no authoritative basis for believing that. There's no reason to believe that at all. Or we rationalize a religious belief that I, I'm a pretty decent person, so when the time comes, I'm going to stand with God, and we're going to be buddy-buddy, and I'm going to negotiate with him. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says every mouth will be closed. You won't have a chance to speak. Or perhaps we rationalize that some conversation we had with some buddies over a beer after work one night about what happens when you die. You know, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll bet my eternity on what we figured out after our third beer. I think I'll just bet everything on that. Human rationalization will land you squarely on the doorstep of hell. Because no human being has ever figured out how to escape death. No human being has ever figured out how to escape judgment. That truth has to be given. It has to be revealed to you. And this is precisely what God asserts. He says in verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, people are more careful about pulling out into an intersection when they're driving than they are about entering eternity with their eyes open. I mean, when you want to pull out into a busy intersection, you want reliable, objective information that the way is clear. And yet, when it comes to our own eternal destiny, we take a guess and we hope. God says, you only have one hope, and that is to listen to my way and my way only. Reject all of your logic. Reject all of your rationale because it won't give you the answer you need. You never will figure it out. There's a third thing you must forsake in your abdication. You must forsake your pride. You must forsake your pride. Listen, even the person hearing the proclamation of God, perhaps his heart, and maybe even right now your heart, is stirring, is being engaged. There's an excitement. There's a stirring up of the heart by the truth of the gospel. Maybe even as you understand for the very first time, the person hearing the good news of God's offer of salvation, that person might think, and maybe you're thinking that right now, you know, I really should logically consider this. I really should weigh the pros and the cons of placing my faith in God through Christ. Listen, the fact that God is even letting you hear this right now, and the fact that he's even letting some ray of truth get through to you, that's his doing, not yours. That's his work, not yours. Look with me at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Oh, this is, this is genius illustration. I mean, God is the ultimate preacher and I learn from him. What is he saying? He's saying in verse 10, can a farmer really take credit for the crops? Can he really take credit for the harvest? No. 
it's God who gave him the seed in the first place, and it's God who created the water cycle to grow the crops. And so when he harvests, who should get all the credit? It's God. In verse 11, in the same way, can a person hearing and responding to the gospel take credit for making a really smart decision? No, because it was God's word which waters the heart to sprout the seed of the gospel which was given by God in the first place. The word of God is the unfailing agent of the will of God. And and listen, the, the word of God plants the seeds of repentance in our hearts and leads us to sorrow over sin and rebellion. And through the word of God, something happens empowered by the spirit of God that Jesus calls something. He calls it being born again. Being given the grace and the opened eyes to repent and to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord. The apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What is that? Trust, belief in God's message of salvation. And he says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Wait a minute. Salvation is a gift of God. We can, we can understand that. But even the faith for me to believe was a gift from God? Yes, everything, all of it. It's all a gift from him. You must forsake your nature. You must forsake your rationalization. You must forsake your pride. Because unless you say, I bring absolutely nothing to the table, you will not be received at the table. Abdication says, I've wanted to be my own master. I've wanted to be my own Lord. I've wanted to be my own sovereign. I abdicate this rule. And I ask you, God, to be my master, to be my Lord, to be my sovereign. And I bend the knee to you, and I will follow you. There must be abdication. Three vital parts to this gracious invitation. Proclamation, abdication, one more, restoration. Restoration. Now, God is giving hope first to the exiles in Babylon, as as part of the purpose of the second half of Isaiah is, that they'll, they'll be freed, they will rejoice in the Lord. But as we read God's promise of restoration, we're going to notice that it really just far exceeds a local 6th century B.C. return to Israel. There's a far-reaching implication. There's a, a future tone to this. Look with me at verse 12. It begins, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. To go out, to be led forth. This is, this is Exodus language. This is escape from slavery language of leaving bondage and, and going to freedom. But there really is a a greater emancipation in view here. It's bigger than just escaping from one nation to go to another. It's the work of God to free humanity from sin. The the joy and the peace, what is that? Well, that, that has New Testament overtones, doesn't it? That is the fruit of the Spirit of God in salvation. It's given to transform people who have entered into this new relationship with God. But there is an exciting element of future promise here. If we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed humanity for their rebellion against him, he also cursed the creation. He cursed his creation. Humanity had tainted his perfect world with sin, and so the creation was cursed. And so not only was humanity going to need restoration and redemption, but creation would need restoration and redemption as well. Adam had been previously working a a perfect garden in a perfect environment. But now, Genesis 3 says, 
Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now, creation today is characterized by something that scientists call the second law of thermodynamics. And that is the law that says that the quality of matter and energy will always deteriorate over time. What does that mean? It means that vegetation dies. It means that weeds and thorns are going to kill the good vegetation. It means that your 1994 Toyota is not as exciting to drive as it used to be. That things get old. Everything is deteriorating. And we have been fed a lie for centuries and centuries that somehow the cycle of life and death is natural. There is nothing more unnatural. What is natural is that God gave life to never die again. But now because of sin, now because of death, now because of the curse, matter and energy and human beings deteriorate and die. As a matter of fact, Romans 8, 19 says, speaks of the creation. It says that creation, quote, waits with eager longing for the creation was subjected to futility, that someday creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, that the restoration of creation is bound together. It is inextricably a part of the restoration and the redemption of humanity, that when humanity is glorified, then creation will be glorified as well. That someday God will make a new heaven and a new earth upon which to place all of his new creations who have accepted the offer of the water seller, who have believed the proclamation and have abdicated the throne of their own lives. And now God poetically pictures a creation living the joy of relief as it should be, the joy of being restored as it should be. The second half of verse 12. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. So, in other words, if mountains could express themselves, they would be singing. And if trees could express themselves, they would clap their hands. Why? Because finally, they're not going to die either. They're not going to die either. The fate of nature is tied to that of mankind, and when mankind is restored, creation will be restored. It is a return to the paradise of Eden as originally designed by God. Now, if you're one of those that wants to save the planet, you know, I I wish you the best, but there's only one way to save the planet. And that is to place your trust in the Lord Jesus and be here when he makes a new one. That's the only way. Because let me tell you what's happening to the old one. 2 Peter 3, verse 7 and 10 says, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I don't think that saving plastic bags at Walmart is going to prevent that. It's going to happen. At that time, when there is literally no creation, when it's gone, Revelation 20 says that there is an in-between time, says that the Lord will judge all of the unsaved of all the ages, all those who have rejected the offer of Isaiah 55. When that's done, 
Then Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And forever there will be on this new earth, there will be a sign. There will be a monument. There will be this this wonderful remembrance to the name of the Lord, to his marvelous grace and to his kindness. It will be a monument that can never be taken away. The end of verse 13 says, And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign or monument that shall not be cut off. Now, what is this monument? That little word, it shall make a name, refers back to the fact that you shall go out with joy and you will be led forth in peace. You will be the eternal monument to the grace of God as you enter into a glorious, pristine new world forever in his care. And the invitation to participate, it's right here. The water, the milk, the wine, the bread, the fine, rich food, it's right here for the taking. What a glorious kingdom in which we're invited to participate. In the Old Testament, all of the biggest festivals and holidays and events were accompanied by grand music, glorious, glorious music. As an example, in Nehemiah chapter 12, the newly reconstructed wall of Jerusalem is being dedicated before the entire nation. And Nehemiah commissions two great choirs. And these are big choirs. One stands on top of the south wall of Jerusalem. And one stands on top of the north wall of Jerusalem. And get this, there was an entire trumpet-playing family. A guy by the name of Zechariah, son of Jonathan. His whole family, they're commissioned to come. That must have been a loud household to grow up in. And then there were many other musical instruments to accompany the choirs. And the text says that, quote, God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That their music was so grand, so loud, so overpowering, so majestic, so magnificent. That out in the countryside you could hear the choirs from the walls of Jerusalem. And you could hear the trumpet players and the instrumentalists lifting their skill to the glory of God. So based on that, I think it's reasonable to think that as all those who accept the gracious invitation of the Lord, as we enter into this magnificent, shining new kingdom, I think it's reasonable to assume that great and grand music will accompany that day. I think we can almost imagine an innumerable choir singing to the glory of God, singing to the heights of heaven, the National Kingdom Orchestra, lifting our souls to the throne of God, transcendent music, worshipful music, glorious music, soaring music. But in the background, if you listen carefully, you can detect something that seems out of place. This seems not so beautiful, not so majestic, not so transcendent. It's a percussive sound. It's a sharp sound. It's a, it's a repeated sound that begins to overwhelm and drown out the kingdom choir and orchestra. And over and over and over again, the sound is happening until it dominates your attention and distracts you. You can't get away from it. You can't stop it. Time and time again, it's getting louder. It's getting louder. You hear this repeated, harsh, metallic, dink, dink. 
dink. And it's unmusical. And it's ugly. And you understand that at that moment, what you're hearing is the sound of the nails being driven into the wrists and into the feet of Jesus Christ. You see in verse 1, when God offers to quench your spiritual thirst, to forgive all your sins, to give you his own righteousness and his holiness so that you can enjoy with him for all eternity this glorious kingdom. When he says, come, buy without money and without price, this doesn't mean a price wasn't paid. There is a purchase and there is a price. It just wasn't yours to pay. Listen, it's not that God is just so benevolent that he's giving away spiritual water and spiritual bread for nothing. He's not giving away salvation for free. It's just that when you come to the transaction, it's already been paid for. The transaction has already been completed. The wrath of God against your sin has been emptied onto somebody else. This is how God can offer salvation to you freely. Because in perfect obedience and joy in his Father's plan, the Lord Jesus offered himself in your place, in my place, for my rebellion, for your rebellion. You see, Isaiah 55 is a gracious invitation, but only because Isaiah 53 has already been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so before you can hear the glorious music of the coming kingdom, before you can grasp the glorious melody of forgiveness of sin and take in the glorious harmony of God's gracious invitation, First, you must hear the offensive, sharp, bitter, ringing sound of the nails. Our Father, we come to you now, eager to thank you for what the Lord did. And this Good Friday evening, we are delighted, Lord, and sobered as well by the death of Christ. We're delighted because it's the way to our invitation to salvation and we're sobered because he had to go through so much for us. He had to die. He had to be offered. And so this evening, Lord, we would celebrate the Lord's table and we would ask you to be with us as we remember him in the way that we are commanded to, as we remember his body and his blood through the taking of the Lord's table, through communion. Lord God, this is in many ways the highest form of worship we can perform on this earth as we remember the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his his name that we pray. Amen.